0: Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad to see you here today, and a special welcome to our guests that are in the room. If this is your first or second time with us, as Pastor Will said just a little bit earlier, there was a Connect card on your seat. Would you take a moment and give us your name and your address? If you do that, we'll send you a small gift as our way of saying thanks for being with us. But the other way you can participate with us in the service today is to give us whatever's on your heart in terms of good news or something you want us to pray about. Right there on the back, you can write that down. And we take that quite seriously around here. And we'll pray about those things with you and celebrate with you. And then in just a few minutes, when we get done with our message today, you can take some steps and move forward. And you'll see how that works in just a moment. Today, right now, I want to direct your attention to a brand new message series we're calling Turning Points. Turning Points. So we're going to look at the life of Jesus And we're going to identify four times in his life where when what happened with him and through him and because of him, everything changed. Everything changed. There are incredible moments in the life of Jesus recorded right there in your Bible, primarily in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some of the other books of the Bible reference back to some events. But there are four times that in the life of Jesus that for me right now, speak to me in my life. And I want to share this with you over the next few weeks. I'm going to take you to one that for me is a perpetual lesson that I'm learning from Jesus, one that I have to be constantly reminded of. So as we're talking today, if you feel a little stretched, if you feel a little pulled, if this feels a little uncomfortable, or if it feels maybe foreign, foreign to you, or maybe it's familiar, you just aren't good at it, then you and I are in the same place. When Jesus does what we're going to talk about today He literally changes everything. And if we will follow in his example, followers of Jesus are supposed to follow Jesus. If we'll follow in his example, I think it'll give significant lift to your spiritual life. It'll bring vitality. That's why we want to talk about this. And today's event in Jesus' life is just huge. And we're going to get there in just a moment, but let let me talk to you about a couple Bible stories uh, just briefly to kind of get us set up for this situation. Now, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he is, in many ways, the fulfillment of all the stuff the first half of your Bible talks about. The Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that stuff. And sometimes in the Old Testament, when you're reading it, those Jewish ancient documents and you read it, sometimes what you'll discover is like there'll be a really good person and they'll do something really profound. And you think, man, that's the top of the game. When it comes to this subject, that's the best a person can do. And then a few pages later in the Bible, you get to the Gospels and you read about Jesus and you go, oh my goodness, I thought that was the best that could be done. But look at what Jesus does with it. That's what happens today in our example of where Jesus turned everything. Back in the Old Testament, there was a gentleman by the name of David. We have talked about him a lot around here. He was a, a shepherd boy. He was the youngest of several brothers. And his job was to tend the sheep. His older brothers were involved in the military work of their country, nation, state, and they were out in the fields where the skirmishes and the battles were happening, but David was stuck back home. But through a crazy series of events where really he was just going to take lunch to his brothers, he runs out and he finds himself in the middle of a battle. And that's the story where David, little shepherd boy, kills Goliath the big giant, the enemy of the nation of Israel. Well, the backstory of that is is that David wasn't even supposed to be there. He's just a shepherd boy. But the king of Israel at the time, Saul, Saul was in charge. And Saul had been the king of Israel. He's the very first king of Israel. Up till that point, they had very little small rulers. But Saul was the first guy that unified the whole nation, all 12 segments of that nation under one leadership. And one of the reasons Saul was chosen is he's a very tall guy. And he was literally head and shoulders above everybody else. And so when you saw Saul walk into a room, everybody kind of went, oh, that, that's impressive. And he kind of demanded a certain amount of respect when he walked in the room just by height. And I'm going to tell you something. When I read that story in the Bible, I get a little mad. You shouldn't be able to garner respect just by height. Nobody here has any control over that. And if you do, would you please share your secret with me? So I read that story and I'm like, just because he's tall... But that's exactly what happened, just because he was tall, and I bet he was a little good looking too, and he probably could sing and play basketball. So all that stuff just makes me a little frustrated, right? But so he garners this respect, but out on the field of battle, there was a taller person, Goliath, but it wasn't tall Saul, and it wasn't Goliath's tallness, both of which gave an immediate impression of respect. Maybe they have leadership capabilities and maybe they should lead. And in fact, in that arena, they both were. And into that arena, walks a short stature, about five, five and a half, six, probably about 220 pounds, probably about, probably looked a whole lot like me. was David. And he walked out. He's the hero of the story. You see how you can read the Bible with bias, friends. You can. Out under the field walks David, and here he doesn't have the title, he doesn't have the stature, he doesn't have the experience, the visibility, and he's just supposed to be in the sheep pen taking care of the sheep. But in that moment, God uses this little man, this young boy, and does incredible stuff. I want to talk with you, number one on your message notes, about the idea that spiritual leadership is always going to be different from secular leadership. Your message notes look like this right on the inside. Spiritual leadership will always be different from secular leadership. Uh, the idea of spiritual versus secular, well, it just works. By spiritual, I mean the things that God is primarily engaged in. All of life is spiritual. That was one of the defining statements when this church began, that we would work hard to not be Sunday followers of Jesus, but every aspect of our life, those parts you get to see and those parts you don't my marriage and my work, as well as my going to church. The way I do school, the way I do friendships, the way I engage people I'm frustrated with, all of life is spiritual. And so that's the stuff that God wants to speak into, all of life. But then there's this other slice that we use the word secular to define. That that is the stuff that doesn't have a specific kind of spiritual engagement. Maybe stuff that even is anti that stuff, perhaps. And when it comes to this subject we're going to talk about today in the life of Jesus, where he gives us a real turn, specifically in the, in the idea of what it is to be a, a leader, a great leader. You begin to see a little bit of it echoed in the story of David, where it wasn't stature or title or position or esteem that was already earned, no public persona and yet God begins to raise up David. Now, after that event with Goliath and David, people used to run around because there was a pretty spectacular event where David, the little shepherd boy, besks the, the greatest enemy and foe that Israel was facing at the time. The, the ladies especially used to run around and they would sing a little song. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his 10,000." And Saul, who had formal leadership over the country, he was the formal leader of David, that rubbed him the wrong way. It, it, it bothered him to hear all the, the, the people in the land praising David and talking about David killing his 10,000 and Saul leading his, killing his thousands. You know, just a way of identifying who was carrying a certain amount of the popularity and who had the hearts of the people. And the Bible says that at that moment, Saul turned a bitter heart towards David. And where Saul's son and David were best friend, and David used to be a guest in Saul's house, now Saul's heart has turned against David such that at several occasions he tried to kill David. This was the king, the leader of Israel. And when you read the story of Jesus, we're gonna read in a few minutes, and you have that story in mind, you begin to see that Jesus turns human understanding of what great leadership is. One more story from Israel's past. There was another guy. His name was Joseph, and he was right near the bottom. He was the number 11 of 12 sons. And Joseph was a bit of a dreamer. And one day he goes to his brothers and he says, there's going to come a day when you're all going to bow down to me. Now, I'm going to tell you something. That's not good family dynamics. That doesn't go over well. Well. There's going to come a day when you're all going to bow down to me. I know you're older, and in our culture, the older brothers, they get the highest honor. But there's going to come a day when all of you, I had a dream, and they were like wheat sheaves in the field, and I was one of them, and, you were, and all of you began to bow down to me. Well, this created some tension in the family to vocalize that kind of a dream. If you roll fast forward in the story, these brothers turn against Joseph and Joseph the dreamer finds himself not being bowed down to. He finds himself in prison. He finds himself a slave. Nobody's bowing down to him. He serves in in Pharaoh's court in the house of Potiphar and a high-ranking official in the land of Egypt. And unlike the story of Saul and David, where Saul is jealous of David, where Saul has no room in his chariot for David to ride around with him because Saul needs all the attention. When Joseph finds himself serving in Potiphar's house, what he discovers as the second or third in command uh, in Egypt, he discovers a leader in Potiphar that says to Joseph, I see great things in you, and I, I believe you can help us now. I think You know, the hand of God is on you. You've got wisdom, and I'm going to step back from my formal position, and I'm going to let you take charge over this entire challenge that we're facing. And where Saul had no room in his chariot for David to ride along, metaphorically speaking, the second in command of, of, of Egypt says to Joseph, hey, I got all the room in the world for somebody with your talent and your ability to step up and be a part of the solution to the challenge we're facing. And then you come, then you come to Jesus. Now, before we get there, turn to your message notes and let's take, make a couple points. We've already said, number one, that spiritual leadership will always be different from secular leadership. Number two, servant leaders, or if you like the phrase spiritual leaders, the word servant leader kind of encapsulates what I'm, that phrase encapsulates what I want to talk with you about today. Servant leaders celebrate the achievement of others. I'm just' trying to set a little bit of a, of a tone before we get to what Jesus did that turned everything. one more story from our Bible before we get right to the actions of Jesus. In the New Testament, as Jesus was walking on the Earth, he gathered people to him. There were 12 disciples. Some people say that that kind of harkens back to the 12 divisions of Israel. Not necessarily that one of the twelve disciples from all the twelve tribes, but this idea that all of Israel, all of that nation, was represented in following Jesus, and they were doing deeply spiritual stuff. These people watched Jesus give sight to the blind. They watched him, um, you know, raise the dead. That's a pretty big deal. He fed thousands of people with, you know, a couple fish and some bread. They watched him do incredible stuff. And he taught with authority. His words brought life to people. The one day, Jesus said to them, hey, we're heading towards Jerusalem. And when I get to Jerusalem, here's what's gonna happen. They're gonna kill me. And before that, they're gonna beat me. They're gonna mock me. And I'm gonna die. That's a pretty stark prediction of what's gonna happen. Now, if you know the story, you know that's exactly what happens. But those 12 spiritual men surrounding Jesus doing very spiritual stuff, they, they demonstrated in that moment a certain thick-headedness. Three different times in the book of Mark, Jesus is gonna say the same thing. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're gonna beat me. They're gonna mock me. They're gonna spit on me. They're gonna kill me. And each time Jesus says it, one or two of the disciples who are doing very spiritual stuff with Jesus demonstrate they have a thick skull. And the point he's trying to make is not penetrating. At one point, two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. James and John's mother comes to Jesus and says, Um, uh, I'm sorry, James and John come to Jesus. The mother's not involved. James and John come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask you to do. And Jesus says, no, he's just said, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and be killed. Jesus says, what do you want me to do? And they say, here's what we want you to do. We want you, when you come in your power and in your authority, we want you to let one of us sit on your right and one of you sit on your left. Okay? You want one of you to sit on my right and one of you to sit on my left. They were asking for an incredible position of of visibility, of power, of esteem, of influence. In fact, that's kind of why they were following Jesus anyway. He had a certain following. He was popular. And and they enjoyed the crowds pressing in. They enjoyed being a part of that posse. Jesus, we want one of us to be able to sit on your right and one on your left. Each time Jesus predicted his death, one of the disciples asked a question like that or made a statement indicating they didn't really understand what he was doing. And Jesus each time corrected them. In this particular time, number three on your message notes, he's going to use a phrase. And the phrase is this, not so with you. Now, without understanding the context, that doesn't mean anything to you. But if you'll write the phrase, not so with you in the blank, I want to take you to Mark 10, the exact moment that we're talking about, in verse number 42, where Jesus calls his disciples together because the other disciples, the other 10, are mad at James and John for asking Jesus if they can sit on the right and left. But they're not mad because James and John have asked a bad thing. They're mad because they didn't ask it first. They're mad because if James and John are in positions one and two, what's left for them is three through 12. And they don't wanna be three through 12. They wanna be one and two. And so they're mad. So Jesus calls them all together and says, I think we need to have a little talk. So Jesus called them together and said, look at this. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, that is the people that kind of have us under oppressive government right now, they lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Here's our phrase: not so with you. All right, so in normal world, it's normal for people to say, When you get in power, let me sit on your right and your left. We want to be number one and number two. We want to ask before anybody asks. We call dibs, you know, on position one and two. It's kind of like my kids, every time we're about to get in the car, they yell shotgun. And I go, You got a mother. She's supposed to-that's her seat, you know. But somehow, if you call it, you're first, right? So they called the positions of honor. And Jesus says, not so with you. I get it. That's way the whole world works. But not with you. It's not supposed to be that way. And then look what he says. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So not so with you, that phrase doesn't apply to everybody. But number four, if you want to be great, it applies to you. Now, if you don't want to be great on spiritual things, then you can disregard what we're about to learn but not so with you, was supposed to be a phrase that Jesus followers all embraced. Every Jesus follower was supposed to say, this is the way people do authority and power. This is the way they do prestige. Titles lead the way. And you've really made it when you get a title. You really made it when people You know, acknowledge your authority. And you should be mad if they don't, like Saul. David's killed 10,000. Saul's killed thousands. You should get mad like Saul. You should have dreams like Joseph. That's the way to get to power. That's the way to get to authority. That's the way to be great. But to every follower of Jesus, Jesus says the phrase, not so with you. That's not the way to greatness. That's not the way God defines greatness. Great leaders, spiritually speaking, do not operate clamoring for position and authority. That's not how they do it. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, Jesus explicitly says, I'm not interpreting. Here's how you do it. You become a servant of all. The idea here is is that if God's given you a certain amount of influence, a certain amount of power, a certain amount of place in your family. As a parent, you have a certain place, certain power, certain authority. Perhaps it's your job, you have maybe a position over other people. Maybe in your friends, you have an informal, relational influence. Wherever you have power and influence, the question with to every follower of Jesus is, what are you gonna do? What will you do with the power you have? How are you going to leverage that? Will you leverage it in the spirit of Saul that had no room for David in his chariot, jealous, and concerned, or in the, in the manner of, of Potiphar who says to Joseph, wow, we, you could be a part of this significant team. And this is a concept, right? It's just a normal concept. In fact, even secular writers are talking about this in the business marketplace, that most of us want to follow a leader who doesn't take their position to garner more esteem to themselves or to build up themselves. Most of us want to follow a person, work for a person, be in an environment where there's a certain servant-heartedness from the leader to the people they're fortunate to lead. Which leads us to point number six. Some leaders want titles and position. And to some degree, that's not wrong. But what would you do with it if you got it? What would you do with that power if you got it? Would you serve yourself or would you serve others? Are you there to make others succeed? Are you there for your own success? And maybe in a little bit more complicated scheme, maybe the success of others is exactly how We define our own success. Jesus speaking there. We help others. Number seven, servant leaders or spiritual leaders, they they pick up a towel. Most clamor for titles, Jesus says in a life-changing turning point moment in his walk on earth that servant leaders pick up a towel. Some of you have been in church, you know this story. But I would like for you for the next few minutes to try to Engage this story with fresh ears, almost as if you've heard it for the first time. Because if you heard it as a child, perhaps, or even as a young adult, it's possible that your earlier experience with this story doesn't, uh, didn't allow you to experience just how heavy and, 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 and profound and what a, what a turning point this actually was. When the God of heaven literally stepped off the throne, stepped into humanity, and said, I'll be with you. And he finds himself in a room with his followers, with his posse, all of whom were following him because he was a rabbi, a teacher. He had the goods. He, he garnered a certain respect. He was the most significant man in the room at the time. He had the authority, the power, Visible, but also invisible when you, re- when you remember what he represented, that he was the very son of God living among humanity. And in a moment in time, he does something that changes the definition of greatness forever. And there is no greatness, spiritually speaking, and I would say practically speaking, there is no greatness that lives on. The kind of greatness that people aspire to that they really want when they think more deeply about what they really want. Jesus forever in this moment moment, redefines what that kind of greatness is. And that story is found in John chapter 13. And I'd like for us to take a moment and just kind of read through it. There's some commentary I'll make, but this is not a story that needs a whole lot of commentary. Just a little background. So a little background, here it is, in that culture most people wore sandals, if shoes at all. Shoes were a luxury. And they walked not on paved roads, but on dirt roads. And their feet would get dirty and crusted over. There were pebbles in the way. There would be small bruises and, and cuts. Animals roamed the same areas that people did. There was often all kinds of grossness from animals in the street. Hygiene wasn't quite what we understand today. They often threw out their garbage, both human waste garbage and food garbage from the house into the streets. There was just dirt. And when a guest would come to your house, one of the first things you would do as a sign of honor to your guest is you would bend down and wash their feet. It's a sign of honor, but it's always very practical. Uh, They stunk. It was dirty. They would carry the dirt from the outside into the inside. Typically, that role of foot washer was reserved for the lowest person in the house. A servant. If there wasn't a servant, then it would be a child. If it wasn't there wasn't a child, then it would be the woman. And finally, I suppose it would work its way up the chain to the head of the house. That's the culture in the day. That's certainly not my commentary on the value of people in those different categories. All right? That's the background. And in that background, Jesus and his disciples find themselves in a house. And at this point in the story, when we pick it up, somebody should have already washed everybody's feet, but nobody's going to wash anybody's feet in that group because they're too busy saying things like, when you come in your power, would you let me sit on your right and left? And how dare you ask that question? Nah, I should have asked that question first. If, you, if, you're, if you're one and two, where am I going to be? So nobody's done the job of expressing the value and the worth of the other people in the room. John chapter 13 then, here's our story. It was just before the Passover festival, the most spiritual, by the way, interesting, the most spiritual moment of the year for Israelites. The most spiritual moment of the year. It was just before Passover, Jesus Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. That verse is important. In this very moment, Jesus knew he was the strongest, most powerful person in the room. He was very aware that he had come from God and he was returning to God. So he was aware of his position, his authority. He was aware that that he was the the ruler of the universe who had stepped into human time and place. So when he was aware of this, here's what he did, verse 4. So, that word's important. In the very moment of being aware, at that very time, and because he was the most powerful person in the room, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So everybody in the room at this point is kind of like, oh, crud, I think we messed up. Uh, you know, those three corrections we got just a few hours earlier, I bet we get a big one now. Uh, why didn't, who, was, who should have washed feet? And Peter, who was probably the oldest disciple, was like, I'm not washing, I'm the oldest, you know? And Judas is like, I'm not washing, I got a money bag to hold. I mean, I'm making all this up, I have no idea. I have no idea what's in their mind. But they're not gonna wash anybody else's feet, and in awareness of his power and his authority and his influence, because he had it, Jesus gets up. And when he comes to Peter, verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? I mean, Peter was the first often to speak. And I, I love it because often he just reveals, you know, the words reveal the heart, right? And so Peter's just like, look, you're, you're not supposed to wash my feet. I mean, I know I didn't wash your feet, but I know you're not supposed to wash my feet. And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you're going to understand it. No, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, Jesus is making the bigger point of his whole purpose here. Like, if I, don't, if I can't wash you, you and I can't be connected. Later on, they're going to understand it, Jesus said. Right now, it just sounds like words. Well, Peter just takes it at face value. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. I mean, if washing is how we're connected to you, wash me all the way. That's not a bad heart, by the way. That's a pretty good statement of understanding the the power of a connection with Jesus. It's not theologically precise all the way, but Peter is literally walking in the flow of what Jesus is trying to do anyway. He's beginning to get it. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you're clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said not everyone was clean. He's talking about Judas here. In verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And he says, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so for that is what I am. Just interesting. Every once in a while, somebody will say to me, Jesus never claimed to be God. This verse right here is a direct affront to that, as well as when Jesus looked at somebody and says, your sins are forgiven. That's kind of God-like behavior, all right? So, rightly so, for that is where I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you, Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And in that moment, Jesus completely redefined what it looks like to be great, spiritually speaking, to be a leader with incredible amounts of influence. I want to give you a very practical question for you to ask to make sure that you're walking in the example of Jesus. It's not in your message notes, but you may wanna write this down. Here it is. How can I serve you? How can I serve you? When you are fortunate enough to find yourself in a position where you have a certain amount of influence, formal or informal, when you find yourself with a certain amount of power, when there's a group of people that are responsible to you, there's one question that I think gets to the heart of what Jesus was demonstrating. The path to greatness as quick as anything else I've ever heard. How can I serve you? How can I serve you? Before I get to the, the last point here, I want to just tease this question out with you for a minute. Imagine a scenario if you're a parent. But one day your kids come into you, it's after school and you know, you're in the middle of whatever your house does in the evening is People, the day is winding down and your kids were to walk up to you and they were to say, mom, how can I serve you? Imagine that for a second. And then imagine falling back, fainting, and picking yourself up off the floor and going, oh my goodness, this is bizarre world. Who, who snatched your body? Who's in there? There's aliens in the world, right? The, the reason that feels so foreign is, is, maybe it's the words, but even in the spirit, if there was a better and more, you know, more, less stark way of saying it, that's not the way we engage people typically. How can I serve you? <laughs> if, you're, if you're in high school or, or, or college and you're in the room, um, just here's a little experiment. If you wanna like really mess up your parents, when there's company over the house, like when their friends are there, walk up to them and just casually say, hey, mom, I've got a few minutes. How can I serve you? Now here, here's what's gonna happen. Your parents are going to stumble. They're not going to be able to think quick on their feet. They're not going to have anything for you. So it's a safe question to ask because their mind's going to be reeling. Like, here's what they're going to be thinking. You are an awesome kid right now. You were bad yesterday, but right now you're making up for it. And then they're going to think, I hope my friends heard this because you just made me look like a great parent. And then as soon as the friends are gone, they're going to go to you and say, whatever do you, what do you want for Christmas? Just ask. You're going to get it. So there's some very practical reasons to ask this question, right? But beyond all that, that question, how can I serve you? Imagine. Imagine a husband engaging his wife regularly and saying this phrase. Hey, I, know, I know I've been busy. I know things are going on. But right now, in this moment, how, how can I serve you? What would that question do for the tone of a marriage? The, the, the climate of a house? Well, what would it what if, what if you showed up at work tomorrow? A lot of you will go into work tomorrow. And what if you showed up at work tomorrow and when you showed up, your boss said, hey, can you come here for a minute? We need to have an impromptu meeting. I don't know about you, but I would probably feel like, what's going on? But what, what if when you, when you came into the room, your boss said to you, hey, is there some way I can help you? How can, I, how can I serve you? I mean, you're working hard. What can I do to make your life easier right now? Wouldn't you like to work in an environment where the people who have responsibility over you believed it was their job to serve you versus making you feel like they're there, you're there to serve them. I mean, that's countercultural, that's not intuitive, that's not the way life works. I mean, we're clamoring to get ahead, we want positions of authority. But Jesus said, not so with you. Not so with you. What you need to know about a lot of leaders is they don't know how to share the chariot. They don't know how to share the influence. They can't, for instance, Saul could have said, Hey, I hear you singing the song, David killed 10,000, I've killed 1,000. He could have said to David, Hey, why don't we get together and we'll be the 11,000 club? He could have done that. You know, why don't we get together? You know, you're already friends with my son. I mean, we could get together. We could do this thing together. And the two of us could do more than maybe any one of us could do alone. He couldn't do that. A lot of people can't do that. And it's real easy, by the way. Here's the challenge when you guys. It's real easy to get in mind that leader that you worked for or are working for, that person in your life that you're praying will hear this sermon and ask you how they can serve you. It's real easy to get that part of the equation in your mind. It would be awesome, for instance, to be on the receiving end of somebody saying to you, how can I serve you? That's the easy part of this message. The hard part is for you to ask the question, how do you leverage your influence and power And say to somebody else, how can I serve you? So if you're the the spouse in the room today and you're praying your husband hears this or your wife hears this, that's okay. Maybe they do need to hear it. Most of us do need to be reminded of this. But what what if instead of waiting on them to do it, what if you picked up the responsibility and you started bringing that tone into your home? And what, what if, we, instead of waiting on your boss to do it at work, what if you, as a Jesus follower, began to bring that attitude into your workplace? And not just with your clients, but with your co-workers. How can I serve you? I'm telling you that what Jesus modeled by taking off his outer garment, which is really interesting language, that he takes off his outer garment, disrobed himself, Because it hearkens to what exactly was happening theologically or behind the scenes spiritually anyway. That he had on the royal robes of, of heaven's greatness. And the father looked to the son and said, it's time for you to go to earth. And Jesus peels off the royal robes, puts on human flesh and is born into a manger. And begins to serve all of humanity. And in that moment, when he takes out his outer garment and he begins to wash the disciples' feet, he was only putting into practice what he was already doing. And I don't think maybe, perhaps, you have considered in a while, if at all, how powerful you can be if you will follow his example. And how greatness really is, spiritually speaking, defined not by your title, but by how often you'll pick up the towel. All of us want to work for a person like that. All of us want to be married to a person like that. All of us want to have kids like that. But what if, while we held on to all those desires, what if we wanted even more to be like that? What if we wanted it to be said of us, you know? (laughs) When I engaged him, when I engaged her, the one thing I know, They weren't there for themselves. They made it clear they were there for me. That they were there to help me. This is the very lesson that landed not so much the day it happened with the disciples, but later as they reflected on their time with Jesus. It's why John wrote this story down in his gospel. It was at that moment Jesus redefined greatness. And if there's something in you stirring for that, let me take you to point number eight, just a quick reality check. Because I like to have truth in advertisement. Number eight, it's going to cost you more than you realize to do this. Like, it sounds great. And the biggest problem for me today in giving you this message is I'm going to have to go home and try to put it in practice. I mean, it's difficult to talk like this because it raises an expectation. And I'm going to have to face my staff this week. I'm going to be like, did you listen to the message? And I'm going to be like, no, I was busy working on Sunday. I'm like, thank God you didn't hear that message because expectations go up and I don't know if I can live up to those. Or, you know, and my wife's sitting over here. So after service, y'all talk about other stuff and get our mind off of this. I know this is hard to do. But Jesus said, not so with you. We don't do it like everybody else. The path to greatness is through serving. So while it's gonna cost you more than you realize, I need you to understand that Jesus paid so much more. Look at Philippians 2 as we end. Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto. But instead, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he served all of us. It was to 12 disciples that he took off his outer garment and washed their feet, the greatest man in the room, humbled himself and served everyone. What will you do with the power and influence you have, both formal and informal? What will you do? Will you let Jesus define for you greatness? Or are you going to let the culture, the world around you, and every time you're tempted to buy the lie that your path to greatness is found in the ways of Saul and the culture, I want you to hear Jesus' words Not so with you. And I want you to remember that he said the path to greatness in your family, with your friends, in your school, in your place of employment, the path to greatness is through serving. It's leveraging what you have for the benefit and the good of others. And it changes everything. It will literally change your family. If you'll go home and put this into practice, it will be hard. It'll be difficult. You might be taken advantage of. Somebody may take advantage of that heart. It costs Jesus much more. He chose to serve, and He had to serve all the way. But that is literally how He was great. It was when he hung on that cross and was obedient to death, even the death on a cross, it was in that place with arms stretched wide, stripped of all of his clothes that he literally was robed in greatness. It was in that moment that he served. And you and I can follow our leader. And we can do what he did. And if he'll stoop to wash the dirty feet of people and if he'll step off the throne of heaven and step into our reality... And if he'll go all the way, not counting the cost, not being afraid of being used, then that should inspire us. And I think it will literally change. And as a pastor, I pray. I pray for a church full of servant-hearted people that are saying, "God, how do we serve? Not how do we get served? It'll change your marriage your school, your friends, your employment, and your church. It's the path to greatness. I want you grab out your Connect cards that you began to fill out earlier, and we'll take a step or two together right now. I've been talking about this Jesus who gave us an example, and he took off the royal robes of deity, and he put on the robes of human flesh, but it's possible you don't have a relationship with him. And the Bible says you can change that in a moment. That if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he will wash away your sins. He'll move you from the category of sinner into sinner saved by grace. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, (laughs) that you can have a relationship with your heavenly father, not based on what you've done, but because of what Jesus did. And I'd ask you to take your pen and check next step A. Today, I'm making Jesus my savior and Lord. Put the card in the bucket when it comes by in a moment as your way of communicating with us. But in another moment when we pray, you can just talk to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. Would you wash away my sins? I can't do that myself. I need you to do it for me. So I trust the work you've done. And I accept your salvation offered to me freely. I wanna follow you with my life. Or how about next step B? Today, I'm choosing to be baptized on December 4th We have a baptism coming up. There's, I don't know, four or five adults already signed up to be baptized. It's the last one between now and the end of the year. So if you've been kind of waiting, this is a great way to go into the Christmas season, experiencing the the freedom and the washing that comes with baptism and letting your church family celebrate with you. Now, next step C says, I have someone in my life I need to ask, how can I serve you? Now, you don't have to tell me who. You're welcome to. But if you'll check that box, what you're basically saying is this, I didn't just hear a message today, I wanna put it into practice. So you just check the box and then sometime in the next 24, 48 hours, look at that person with whom you have some influence, some authority, some power, and you say to them, how can I serve you? Next step D, please send me the link for the next Grow Experience. That's what what Dave was talking about on the screen. GROW is uh, four unique experiences here. There's some information about them in our lobby on some new signs that went up this week. But bottom line is GROW number one is happening right away. But if you'll check this box, I'll send you all the information. So far, 131 adults in our church have gone through GROW number one. And uh, some of you need to do it. This is gonna give you an eye-opening experience into what our church is all about and what makes us special and unique. And at the end of that, you'll have an opportunity to think about whether or not you wanna be a formal part of this. You can take the grow experiences. You don't have to join up, right? But you'll know all the stuff. And the next step, E says, hey, this is primarily for the ladies, all right? Please sign me up to attend an IF table. This is where women are gonna get together in groups of six to eight people around dinner for two hours. They're gonna have some meaningful conversations. And if you wanna know about that, they're happening on November 10th and 11th. You check the box, we'll send you the information and then you're in, all right? You can do that. Let's pray about these things in just a moment. But right now, if you call this church home, would you begin to get together the gifts, the offering you wanna give back to God to make the ministry happen here? There are some folks that are going to come forward and help receive your tithe and your offering today. while you're doing that, i got to tell you a little bit of a story I heard this week. I was hanging out with a a couple folks who attend this church, and they were describing just how meaningful their experience around here has been the last several months. And first the husband and then the wife began to describe that it was in this place that their love for each other was rekindled. And they were having some other stuff going on in their life that was the direct result of some poor choices they made. And they said that in this place they found grace and some practical advice from God's Word and now to move forward. And as I sat there, I thought, you know, that's not the work of one person. That's not the work of one person. I, I can't make that happen. First of all, we can't do anything without the Lord. But you should know we have an incredible team here of both paid staff. And volunteers. It's incredible what happens around this place. About about fifty percent of the adults who call this church home have a place of serving in the life of this church. Everything from taking up offering like these folks now, to serving communion, to praying for people after the service, to serving in preschool and elementary and student ministries, small group leaders. Powerful. It's powerful what happens when people get together and they say, "How can we serve?" I sat there and listened to this couple describe the change that had been happening in their life as they experienced the Lord in this place, and it made me grateful for you. So thank you. Thank you for praying, for giving, and for serving. We're going to pray right now. When we get done, you'll put your tithe and offering, and you'll put your connect card right in the bucket, and then we're going to stand and sing a little bit and worship our God some more. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus, your one and only son, to die for us and to model a path to greatness. God, would you help us not to believe the lie of this world that, said, that says it's by power, prestige, and visibility that we're great, but instead, would you help us to trust you that it, it is as we serve one another, you elevate us and make us great. Father, I wanna thank you For a team around here that knows what it is to serve. They're passionate, they're busy, but they make time to make a difference in people's lives. Thank you for what you're doing there. Father, I right now pray for those that don't have a relationship with you. Would you help them say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I need you to save me. So I accept the work you've done on your cross and in the resurrection as my pathway to a relationship with my heavenly father. And Father, would you give us boldness this week to ask the question regularly, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? How can I serve you? I pray all this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son, amen and amen.